summer, it's a hot day. The vines are growing nearby because wherever you have a wine press, it means that you have the vines growing nearby. So who is going to give me the grapes? Anybody around here is going to give me the grapes? Thank you so much. <laughs> now let's put them on the ground. Let's put them on the ground. And right now, as you can all observe, we don't have any shoes on. They're barefoot. Why, uh, why are we barefoot? Pardon? Exactly. So why do we need to be barefoot? So why do we have to be barefoot? Why so, you you so you don't crush the pips. So you don't crush the pits. So you don't exactly. Here is the answer. Yes. Exactly. They will get bitter, so we don't want to crush them. Now let's imagine that we have some ropes here, so that we don't fall on our behind. It's very, very slippery. Uh, right here almost. And we can start stepping on the grave. So let's start doing it. Okay. Now, parchment is actually skin, a skin of an animal that has been worked to become like that. So that was the skin, and you have to work it. It takes a long time until you turn it into parchment where you can write on. Now, you don't kill an animal in order to have parchment. But an animal that has been eaten, you have to you use the skin of that animal that has already been eaten. Here you have an example how it was uh, uh, stuck one part to the other. You can see that here. You can see that it's two different. This is from gazelle skin. And you can see here, it's very old. This is written on very thick skin. It's maybe a hundred, more than a hundred years old. It's from Yemen. It's Yemen. And you can see that this part, they, uh, they put another part here because there was a mistake here. Okay. On this side and on that side, over there. Also, the priest used to have a hat. And that is the breastplate, which is also put as a decoration here. It's called the breastplate. Some letters, in order to get a clear column, he elongates the letter. He makes it a little bigger, longer, so that he can actually plan it to, to start to have a column there. The sun is a little rusty today. You'll see that. Let's say the F circle is the sun, okay? F circle. And this is a sun ray. So, in the morning, before the sun rises, there is nothing here. There is no sun ray. When the sun rises, let's say, now look at the circle. The sun is rising. So, what happens to the sun ray? It's projected here. And the more the sun goes up, the sun ray, there is more light all the time coming here. Yeah. If the sun isn't up, there is still a shadow here. Mm -hmm. The more it goes up, the shadow, or let's say there is light, 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 light. Mm -hmm. By midday, all of this staircase is full of light, right? Mm 
Okay, so the shadow is going down as the, the, as the sun goes up. This is an incredible miracle. Ten steps on the dial by which it had gone down. This is the writing when he was, of Hezekiah when he was sick. In other words, what happened was that just as it was about late in the day, between five and six, I believe, the fact that the sun went back ten steps signifies the sun went back in the sky ten hours to the position it was ten hours before, that is, nine o'clock in the morning. You see, God actually didn't, like with Joshua, God stopped the sun in the sky. But in this case, God actually reversed the sun right back to the morning. And what was God saying through this? This is the amazing message. Hezekiah was at the twilight of his life. He was, the sun was about to set on his life. He was about to go to the grave. And God said, I'm going to turn the clock back in your life. I'm going to renew your youth. Up to that point, he'd been about 14, 15 years as king. And God was saying, I'm going to give you another 15 years. I'm going to turn the clock back. I'm going to renew your youth. I'm going to make you young again, as it were. And I'm going to give you a, a second chance. And I'm going to do that so so much. I'm going to do that object lesson in the heavens as a sign, as a message in the heavens, what I'm going to do for you, Hezekiah. I thought I would start here and pick this spot as a kind of introduction to Caesarea. It's my third time here and it's only begin to dawn on me how important Caesarea is as far as the Bible's concerned, the New Testament. And uh, this impressive thing here, the aqueduct, is just a small uh, piece of some amazing Roman engineering, but it was all begun by Herod the Great. He's this character, this interesting character that lies behind the whole New Testament. Of course, we think of Herod, the terrible person who tried to kill Christ at his birth and the massacre of the infants but on the other hand Herod was this amazing builder and whether we're going to see so much of Herod's work you know it was Herod that built Masada it was Herod that built a beautiful palace at Jericho it was Herod built a, a mountain fortress Herodian and Herod was the one who made the temple of Jesus time uh, you know, one of the wonders of the seven wonders of the world. But one of the Herod's greatest feats was building of Caesarea practically from scratch. Caesarea was an insignificant port. He made it into the great port uh, on the Mediterranean and put Israel on the map that way. And he dedicated, Augustus Caesar gave it to him. He was a Roman lackey, but he uh, dedicated it to Caesar, so hence it's called Caesarea. And it's Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, as opposed to Caesarea Philippi, which is another place we'll see later on. But Herod did a magnificent thing. I'll give you a handout later that shows you what he did. He built an artificial harbor, laying down concrete under the sea. All that we'll see of the harbor, actually, is just the inner harbor, because the rest of it was destroyed in an earthquake later. But the harbor was, was again, one of the wonders of the world and it became the Roman capital. Okay we're here in the synagogue at Chorazim and you'll notice all the stone in Chorazim is basalt. It was built on a basalt hill. This is volcanic stone and uh, this synagogue here would have been one of many synagogues that Jesus would have preached in in the area. It says he went from synagogue to synagogue preaching and teaching 
because this was where everyone would come to hear and everyone would have heard them because in those days in a sense everyone went to church so everyone went to synagogue so by teaching in the synagogue he was reaching the whole community and uh, it's very interesting in this synagogue is something has been preserved that's of great interest to us in fact what we hear in when Jesus came to teach in Nazareth synagogue in Luke chapter 4 verse 20 it says that when he closed the book that is, he did that reading from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, he's anointed me to preach the gospel, to heal the sick. And then it says, uh, to preach the acceptable day of the Lord. And then it says, he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down to teach. And all of the eyes were focused on him. So what was going on here? Well, actually, he would have stood to give the reading. But then when it came to him to teach, he would sit down. We don't do that, do we? we? We stand to preach. But in those days, the preacher, the teacher of the synagogue, would sit down to teach. And if you can imagine me as the rabbi or whatever, the rabbi would sit down. And this is my throne. All right? This is literally my throne because I am now teaching with authority. This beautiful spot is well, well named, it's the Mount of Beatitudes and uh, I'm always interested to find the authentic places of the Gospels and I truly believe this is one of the authentic places we, we can know for sure and this is where he gave the Sermon on the Mount and of course the Sermon on the, on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Blessed is he, the eight Beatitudes and that's why you'll see this whole church is octagonal on eight sides each representing, and you'll see the blessed Beatitudes all around here. When I came here first time, I've really felt the anointing on this place. And I, that's where I felt particularly a call to teach the Word of God. And I think this is a special place uh, of where, where Jesus gave one of his main teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. This, uh, I believe, is a very special place. As I said, Tabkir is a place called the Seven Springs, where there are seven springs here feeding warm water into the Galilee. And this attracts the, the fish. Unfortunately, the fish suffer as a result because the fishermen know all the fish come here. And so that's where they did a lot of their fishing. And there are a lot of other details that fits with the story of the Gospels. Um, by the way, just something little about St. Peter's fish. Uh, you know the incident where Peter uh, they needed to pay their taxes and Jesus told them go fishing and the first fish you find will have a coin in its mouth well there is a certain fish here in the Lake of Galilee that that has a pouch in its mouth that it used to hold the the very young the young baby as it were and and so there is a the fish that and they often scoop along the bottom and pick up items so this is quite a realistic story that in fact this fish had actually picked up a coin <laughs> that was just enough to pay their taxes. So I don't know if that's always going to work when you need to pay your taxes, but it worked on that situation. Now why is this place so important? Well first of all, this is where everything started in Galilee. Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. Luke 4 tells us about that. And at that point, Jesus left Nazareth and walked down just a bit further south here, he walked down and walked along the seashore.
there are six heart-shaped stones taken from another place, and they've been called the thrones of the disciples. They kind of, there's kind of, you can think of it as two for each disciple, and hence you've got the twelve apostles here, and they're called the apostles' thrones. You know, Jesus said, "You will sit on twelve thrones and judge Israel." So the early Christians took that and said, "Well, this is where the disciples were called into the ministry, and and so forth." So they placed them here, and so it's another proof, if you like, that this is a genuine site. Now, imagine what it was like, the sea level coming up to near these steps. These were like the harbour steps. So Peter there jumps out the boat back there and swims in. The others bring the boat up to about this place. This is where they unload the, the fish on the seashore, which will be about here. They would then climb up the stairs. There's Jesus sitting up there where the church is on the Mensa Christi, cooking the breakfast for them. He tells them, come and bring up, bring the fish, bring some fish here, we'll have breakfast together. And uh, so that would have happened up on the stairs. So all the geographical features and others that I want to show you fit perfectly. This is the place where Jesus walked along the shore, he found James and John washing their nets. This would have been the place where they did that, the perfect place for fishermen to wash their nets, clean their nets. So that's where Zebedee, James and John were doing that. Jesus came to them, having already brought along Peter and Andrew, and now he calls the next two to come and follow him. And this is the place. And they join Jesus, and they walk on down to Capernaum. Jesus is putting together his team. This is another interesting place that relates to the stories of the Gospels. Up the hillside there is the Mount of Beatitudes. Remember we talked about how Jesus uh, gave the Sermon at the Mount, at the top of the Mount of Beatitudes. And then it says he walked down. Okay, he walked down the hillside. And you know the very uh, first thing that happened in Matthew's Gospel after the Sermon on the Mount, which ends in the end of Matthew chapter 7, a leper comes running to Jesus, saying, you know, if you want you could heal me. And Jesus said, I do. And Jesus healed that leper. And this is why this is being called the leper's well, because as soon as a leper is healed, he has got to go and wash himself, cleanse himself. So right here was one of the springs. This well, this actual well was added later, uh, but what was here was one of those springs. In fact, that no doubt, the same spring that, that uh, is now being fed into that waterfall we're here in a very special place. It's called the Eremos Cave. Not many people actually know about it, but this is one of Jesus' favorite places. You might say one of the most holiest places because this is where he spent many hours in prayer. And it has a wonderful commanding view of the Lake of Galilee. He could see everything from here. This was a place of the nations. The nations passed through here on the Via Maris. And many people got to see um, this, uh, he got to see many, uh, many Gentiles, millions, pass through here. And he was often, as he prayed, I'm sure he was praying for the nations. Then it says in Luke 6.17, he came down with them, with the twelve, and stood on a level place. This is the level place. It's above the Eremos cave. What a, what a location to then give the Great Commission. And again, early church tradition concurs. That's why this stone is here, marking 
Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. What a great place. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had appointed to them. So we know it took place here on the mountain, all right? There's only one mountain it could be, all right? They all knew it well. It was their backyard, right? He was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. As far as he was concerned, God had told him, we're going to the other side. He believed the word. But they awoke him and said to the teacher, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? That's not a very polite way to wake someone up, is it? In other words, they were panicking. They were gripped by fear. They were obviously at the point of what they thought was sinking. Then he arose and rebuked the wind. He took off because he knew that it was the problem seemed to be the waves, but the real problem was the wind. He rebuked the wind and, and then said to the sea, Shh, peace be still. But in the language it was, he just went, he spoke to the wind, wind, stop. And then the wind stopped. And then there's still the residual waves. So he then said to the waves, Speak to the wind, you speak to the spiritual forces in the name of Jesus. And then any residual circumstances then, you then speak to them and say, Shh, be, be still. And immediately the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? They didn't believe his word that they were going to the other side. And then they said, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? Many incidents happened here. Of course, this is where Jesus was walking on the water to them as well. And if you're in a storm as well, Jesus will come to you, let him into your boat, invite him into your situation, and he will take you across to the other side. We're here in another wonderful place, Capernaum, which of course was the time where Jesus spent most of his time, really, because he lived here for most of the three and a half years. Obviously he was traveling around as well, and of course he would go to Jerusalem for the feasts, but his base was here for most of his ministry time. And uh, we, can, we are very privileged actually, through the early Christians, and again, some traditions are stronger than others, but we have a very strong tradition that goes way back into the first century, which means, which pretty well guarantees it, of the very house where Jesus lived. Uh, and it's the house where Peter and his brother and their families would live and Jesus and it was a large house and the, the, the design of their large houses was a kind of they'd have rooms around a, a kind of little courtyard and in this house uh, is one of the, uh, the Christians from the start have marked that from the first century as the place of importance in Capernaum. The other thing that we know for sure is the synagogue, which we'll see in a minute. And the synagogue you see there was actually fourth century, but if you look underneath it, it turns from white stone to dark stone, basaltic stone, and that is remains from the original synagogue of the first century. And so you'll get a very good, it's a very gives you a good idea of the synagogues. Capernaum was a major town. I mean, a centurion was 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 uh, placed here. Remember, the centurion helped build the synagogue. Okay, the, the Dan stream here is one of the most significant of the three sources of the Jordan River that comes down. These are streams that come down from Mount Hermon, and they supply the water for the Jordan, which goes into Galilee. 
and, and gives the water for Israel. So in, in the Bible, this is a picture of the river of life that flows down from heaven, Mount Hermon, and gives life to the whole land of Israel. And this is a beautiful place. And uh, so there's spring water all year round, fed by the rain and snow from Mount Hermon. And because of the, all the abundance of water, it's a very rich uh, place of vegetation and life and uh, it's very beautiful here. We're going to first of all point out its place in the Bible because Tel Dan has very ancient walls and gates and a site of worship from the Israelite kingdom. In particular, Dan was the place where Jeroboam set up the golden calf. We'll talk about that. We're going to walk down here to pass the Israelite gate to the oldest gate that exists, the Canaanite gate, which some people think that even Abraham walked through. That's how old it was. It was certainly the Canaanite gate before Joshua invaded. This is an incredibly old gate. It's un no nothing has survived so long. So we'll go through, we'll have a look at that and then go back to the Israelite gate from the time of Jeroboam when it became one of the major cities of that breakaway kingdom of Israel and this is one of the best preserved city gates and so much interesting stuff happened at the city gates we'll go through this and we'll actually go up to the cultic site which is actually where Jeroboam set up the altar to the golden calf and a lot of that has been recovered there so we have some incredible archaeology from the Bible times here and then we'll be able to enjoy the nature walk as we look from above the temple compound of this false idolatrous worship that Jeroboam set up, we see the altar there. They, they knew the base of the altar from the stones and they reconstructed the correct height of the altar. So you can see it was very large. And then above the altar, which is the outer court, you have the, the, the square platform above, which is the holy place, first of all, the plain area being the, the holy place. And then, further back, the Holy of Holies, or the, the uh, impersonation of the Holy of Holies. So here we have a small scale copy of Solomon's, of, of the temple. Here we are at Banias, which is named after the god Pan, Pan, Ban, Banias, you see. And for many, for, way back this has always been a very sacred place because out of this cave came one of the main sources for the river Jordan Gu water gushing out of this cave was uh, one of the three main sources for Jordan Dan was another one and this became a very sacred place this the Jews referred to this cave as, as the gates of hell and uh, it was a very sacred place to them they uh, the pagans believed that the god Pan the goat god I think with a human head, was born here. And in fact, a temple to Pan is just up there. You see the niches in the wall. That's all part of, they would have put idols in those niches and so on. And that was a whole sacred place to, to, to Pan. But why is this all very interesting to us? Well, it's because Jesus, who was really on a retreat with his disciples, he was preparing his disciples for the last stage of his ministry for as he started to move towards the cross. He was preparing his disciples and he took them here on purpose 
because something of great significance and revelation was going to take place in this region. Um, let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 13, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And, and what he's saying is, Look, here we are among all these temples to different gods here, all these different gods being worshipped together. Who do you say I am? He's now putting them himself among all these, you know, false gods that claim people's worship. And he's now saying, in the midst of all of this, these gods, he's saying, who do you say that I am? And here he's making a revelation to the disciples as to who he really is which of course is central to everything, isn't it? As the dew pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. So this is the Banias waterfall, where the waters come down in a dramatic way. And this is the setting for Psalm 42, uh, and we'll see that as we read. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. Remember we said these waters represent the river of life, the living water that flows from God. Okay, here we are at the top of Mount Arbel. What, a, what an amazing view this is, uh, overlooking the Sea of Galilee that way. And here we see the Valley of Pigeons. And it's through this valley that Jesus would have walked as he came down from Nazareth over there. He would have walked down as he came to the Sea of Galilee. And the, and the road would have come in down through this valley between the cliffs as he would have walked on to the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, this mountain is also important in, in the wars. The Jewish resistance was all around Galilee. And uh, Josephus was on the, on the far shore at Gamla. And other resistance fighters were here, hiding in the rocks of Arbel in the caves here. And the Romans finally defeated them by lowering soldiers on platforms down the side of the rocks. And the soldiers then went into the caves and, and killed off the, the resistance. But what a magnificent uh, place, what a magnificent view this is, above, towering above Galilee. This is the actual place where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. Jezebel's table was 
over there in her palace, and she fed 400 prophets of Asherah there, which was the gods that she brought in from, from, where, from her country. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Why did he have all Israel here? Because he knew as all Israel turned to the Lord, that would bring revival back to the land. We're standing here at the top of Megiddo, or Armageddon. This is the place in the Bible that says it is the place of the final battle, as the armies of the whole world are going to gather on this battlefield. The armies of the world are going to gather here. All the armies of the world are going to gather here. All those who are under the power of the Antichrist, they will gather here to destroy Israel and also to stop the Messiah coming because it's prophesied the Messiah will come here when he returns and he'll make his triumphant landing on the Mount of Olives once he has completed this job. And though they f will fire their weapons at him, it says, they'll be of no avail and he will destroy all those armies on that day and there will be a massacre. That is the great battle of Armageddon. Megiddo was built here particularly as well as its strategic position is it has to be near a source of water and this was the cave at the bottom of the hill where there's a spring of water and uh, the walls of the city were further up the slope of course so that's fine un unless you're being invaded and you can't get to your water so what they did was very clever they, they dug this massive tunnel through here Solomon started it, Ahab finished it and that tunnel, the water out of this spring would have flowed down that tunnel and then there would have been that vertical shaft by which inside the city they could go and collect the water. Here we are at uh, the setting of another great uh, battle. And really, most battles are won or lost before they're even fought. And so the setting is actually in Judges, chapter uh, 6 and chapter 7. This is where Israelite, Israel sinned in chapter 6 and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they came under Midianite control for seven years. And the story in Judges 6 about Gideon hiding away in fear. And then the angel of the Lord appears to him and, and says to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And that seemed to be the least accurate description possible of Gideon, but God was speaking in faith to him. You are a mighty man of valor. And then Gideon started living up the anointing in those words, started changing Gideon, and he began to become that mighty man of valor in chapter 6. And then we come to the great battle against the Midianites in chapter 7. And it says uh, there in verse 1 that Gideon and all the people with him rose early and encamped beside the well or the spring of Harod. This is it here. Of course, there's been a drought recently, so there isn't much water flowing, but the spring of Harod comes out from this cave and forms a river. I've seen pictures where this whole area is flooded with water. Oh, I put my trust in you, oh Lord. I put my trust in you. 
For I took my trust in you, oh Lord. I took my trust in you. For I took my trust in you, oh Lord. like a paste okay it's almost that way okay and then it's ready to be uh, fill you know to, to fill baskets round flat baskets perfect round flat baskets like this look to fill the flaps really well and thick okay uh, um, uh, look like this and look at the stone and how oil it is and then you'll show he'll show you his hands look at that <laughs> isn't that amazing <laughs> he has nice, sm smooth hands now. <laughs> okay, so then he fills these baskets, about ten of them each, you know, because he'll, he'll press ten of them each, all right, taking them over to, after they're full and thick and heavy, uh, taking them over here to these two presses. It's just this, this, the, the weight of the baskets and maybe a few of these blocks. They really regulated how heavy the first press was because it was supposed to be very light, the idea was to create, to get very pure, the most pure olive oil from the first press. Ah. We'll show you a little bit about a weaver's life, very tedious work. Um, but also you should know that this is the general, this is the general style house too. They had to use their, their living space as their workspace too. They really didn't have much uh, uh, living space. so. That's where we're in her courtyard, of course, which is also her kitchen, you know, her living space. Now, now she would have this big, you know, bundle of wool uh, that's colored, and, and she'll use her spinning tool to spin the wool. Do you mind? You've got a piece you like? Okay. So she's got the, the old and the new together. She's pinching it between her fingers. That's very important. And she'll hook it and spin. Oh, that's For another example of something that looks really similar and functions similar, the plane. Yeah, uh, you can relate to the carpentry aspect of Joseph's work for sure. This, though, might be a little bit foreign. You might be able to tell what it's used for, though. Vidril. Vidril, exactly. Yes. You can make fire with something probably, though, it would need, a, what, a wooden part? Okay, so here you go. <laughs> Clever, yeah. Isn't that neat? 
So this is our synagogue. Um, I think it's really quite a special opportunity. I, I, maybe I shouldn't speak for, uh, for Nazareth, but I really think it's a special opportunity because it's really the only opportunity that I know of that you can actually see um, a first century style synagogue rebuilt. Uh, it's pretty rare actually and they changed quite a lot in the in the time period after after the temple was destroyed especially really close to around Jesus's own crucifixions. Okay now there's always a room off to the side for the storage of their documents okay the scrolls their scriptures but also legal documents uh, were stored in in um, likely jars found um, at Qumran, just like those jars that contain the scrolls at Qumran. We're standing actually at the northern end of Mount Gilboa, which uh, features in some Bible stories and uh, here in particular we're looking over it's a corner end of the valley of Jezreel we're looking over to the hill Moray over there we're very close to where uh, yesterday we saw where Gideon's 300 men gathered and uh, if I remind you about that particular battle plan we can see it better now uh, the Midianites were parked camped at the other side of the Moray hill in the valley there and Gideon sent his forces rounds to the right, another lot to the left, and another over the top, and surrounded the enemy camp, blew their trumpets, flashed their lights, and uh, had a great victory there. So that took place from near here. Ahab and Jezebel had their palace uh, on the tip of Mount Gilboa, the mountains of Gilboa that spread, spread out that way. It also had a great view over the valley of Jezreel. This is the Tel Jezreel. And so this was one corner of the valley of Jezreel, that great plain where all the armies will gather. And so it was a tremendous location. Jezreel means God sows. It was a very fertile valley. Now what happened here, the first thing to think about is remember we saw from the top of Mount Carmel over there in the hills in the distance there. That's where Elijah had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Then immediately he sent Ahab to come back to his palace, didn't he? He said you better get back quickly. Drive your chariot at top speed because the rains are coming and it's all going to get muddy and you're not going to make it. And then of course we know that Elijah then outrun the chariot. And that's the run that Elijah did. So if you're feeling a little breathless, just think about Elijah. In the time of drought and heat, he ran from the top, from the, from the bottom of Mount Carmel over there, across the valley, and he even outrun the chariot. And down at the bottom of the hill is the Roman uh, town of Beshan from the 2nd century onwards with the theatre 
the, the Agora, the marketplace, the main uh, pollinated street. Up here, where we are, was the ancient city of Bashan, and that's the, the city that we hear about in the Bible. For example, when, when Saul was killed, the Philistines put his body up here on the walls of Bashan that would have been standing here. And so over to my right here, as we swing around, we can see the hills of Jordan, the Jordan Valley, and then the hills of Jordan, and you can see part of the top of the tell of Beshan and somewhere on the walls standing up here high up was the body of Saul hung and David had to come and retrieve that body at night. Okay here we are in Gomorrah and uh, 2 Peter 2.6 in the New Testament says that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And here we're standing in uh, Gomorrah, and uh, God turned this place to destruction. It tur he turned it to ashes, and you can see these thin layers. This is ash, and if you touch it, it will crumble in your hands, but because it's compacted ash, uh, it's actually denser than the original material. That's why it's held together these last 4,000 years. Josephus says that in his day, that's the time of Christ, um, that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were still to be seen. There are five places around just like this, five different cities. Gomorrah is one of the best preserved of them. Sodom is at the bottom, of the de uh, at the bottom end of the Dead Sea. And there's five of these cities that got where you have these ashen formations with sulfur balls embedded in them. And so, as Josephus says, they are signs even for today. It says God made them an example. He made them a visible sign. So they should, for those, to come and to actually see uh, the, the result of sin and God's judgment, that God will judge sin. Here, behind me, in a, what's called now cave number one was one of the most important archaeological discoveries in 1947. Bedouin boy was, was, was walking, he, he lost his, uh, his goat and uh, so he was throwing stones into the different caves and uh, one of the caves he threw a stone into he heard a funny hollow sound come back and uh, he thought there's something interesting in there so he climbed up into the cave and he discovered the the jar and uh, containing the, what we now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, in, the, in the first cave they discovered uh, a, a number of biblical manuscripts. In particular, it's in the Israel Museum now, uh, a complete scroll of Isaiah. This was an incredible discovery from a, of, because the actual manuscripts we had until then from say 1000 AD. And now suddenly we've got a biblical manuscript of a thousand years older than we ever had before.